South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right. Well, a very, very beautiful morning out there. Golly. It's just, uh, you know, it, it seems like that it, this has been a stretched out spring. It's, um, I don't know, maybe my memory's just not as good as it once was, but I just don't remember 50-degree mornings uh, very often this time of May. It was 53 at my house in Bernie, around 60 here in San Antonio. But what a glorious morning to celebrate Mother's Day. And uh, hope you're doing that. Hope all the ladies in the world, whether they're your mom, the mama, your kids, your grandmom, or maybe all those ladies that are mom to their plants or their four-legged friends. Anyway, this is a day we special we celebrate the special women in our lives, and sure hope you're going to do that in a nice way. Uh, it's going to be difficult to take them out to lunch most places, but that's probably good. We have a lot of people that work with us that have worked in food service, and they always say two worst days in the world to take somebody out to dinner or, or Valentine's Day and Mother's Day because it's so crowded and uh, things just aren't quite the same. But take mom out somewhere. Take her to a good nursery. Take her out uh, to a good park. Maybe have a picnic. Uh, There are just lots of reasons to celebrate. And uh, we're celebrating here at Shades of Green. We actually opened our doors on Mother's Day 39 years ago. So for us, it's kind of uh, just not only happy Mother's Day, but happy anniversary as well. And just such a big thank you to all of those of you who have uh, helped us get where we are today. And uh, anyway, just a it's a, like every day, a very, very good day to be thankful. Uh, we're going to start out talking with Paula and Jane, so let's do that and say good morning, Paula. Hi, Bob. Um, I talked to you yesterday about using um, molasses for my nut grass. Yes, ma'am. And do I buy the powder or the liquid to do that? That's, that's a good question. I should have been clear on that. The liquid is much more effective. You can use the, the misconception that so many people have about dry molasses is that it's like a crystal of molasses that can be dissolved. And that's not what dry molasses is at all. It's simply molasses that has been soaked into some kind of substrate like ground up cane or corn cobs or something like that. So it does not dissolve and don't ever put it into a, a sprayer into water expecting it to dissolve because it won't it'll just make a kind of a gummy mess so in uh, if you wanted to you could apply the dry molasses heavily uh, that's the only reason it's created is just to make it a little more convenient to apply but uh, for your purposes uh, using the liquid since you're going to be using it as a drench is going to be much easier much more effective okay and i just now, use does- sprinkling for that yeah, just just use a sprinkler can, um, and and don't buy any special molasses. It doesn't have to be, you know, from the grocery store. It doesn't have to be from a nursery. Just uh, the cheaper the molasses, the better, because the benefits you're you're deriving from it is just it's a it has a lot of carbohydrate in it, which stimulates the microbial life in the soil, which the nuts edge doesn't like, and that's why it just kind of folds up and uh, rots away. So um, find the cheapest molasses as you can at a feed store at a good nursery uh, just any kind of molasses will do the job very well 
Well, I bought the liquid at Shades of Green yesterday, so I just want to make sure we're <laughs> Well, you got the you got the right stuff, and uh, as I always say, just remember it doesn't work while it's in the bottle. So get out okay. and get it applied. It's uh, uh, and let it start uh, start doing its magic. Like I say, you won't see any change for a couple of weeks, and then all of a sudden you'll notice that the nut sedge is just yellowing and despairing. Okay, great. Thanks for the help. Happy Mother's Day once again. <laughs> Thank you, Paula. Appreciate it. <laughs> Bye. All right. Uh, next up is going to be James and then AJ and then Lloyd. Good morning, James. Morning, Bob. How you doing? You know, it is an absolutely glorious Mother's Day morning out there. So uh, I have I can't think of a complaint in the world except, as my great engineer said, you know, we might be fishing or something like that. That that might be a better thing, but happy to be here and uh, happy to be talking to you. How's everything in your world? Oh, just great. This uh, cool weather's really working me to death, man. I'm getting everything <laughs> done. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, we kind of, at the end of the day, we all looked at one another around here and said, hey, did you get that, the number of that truck that kind of ran us down? Because... As there's just so much to do out there, but golly, we're so lucky to be in such a beautiful place and have such beautiful weather to do it in. That's right. Um, I got a question for you. I, this time of the year, uh, I'm transplanting 15 gallon trees into 30 gallon uh, pots. Okay. And the first water they get is uh, uh, has to grow and then some super thrive. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm adding enough Super Thrive to the water, but what do you usually use when you're uh, transplanting? You know, I'm probably going to mix it up because uh, I'm not doing the, the size or the quantity that you are. I usually do a two-gallon watering can, and I put about yeah, a cap full in there. Problem. Yeah, I put about a cap full in there. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I'm a good check. Yeah, it uh, you know it's it's a really interesting product with an interesting history, uh, which I've learned more about recently. the The way Super Thrive came about is the U.S. government apparently approached this old Dr. Thompson that made it, and uh, this was back in the days, early days of World War II, when we were uh, worried about an invasion on the west coast of the United States, and supposedly the army went to him as a scientist and said, "We need you to develop a." a compound that will make plants grow faster than ever before because they were using them wanting to use plants to camouflage some of the some of the gun emplacements and things that they were building and supposedly that is the way that super thrive got started and you know if you if you read the bigger bottle all of the <laughs> it's just almost it reads like snake oil about approved by the US army and marines and navy and you know all the things it says there but by gosh it, it the stuff really does work and uh um I don't know I just I think for a for a starter solution I think it's about as good as you can get I like Howard Garrett's Garrett juice very much but uh and I frequently will add just a little bit of that as well because I think it's kind of like a synergistic effect you're putting a bunch of individual items together which you know work better than than the individual items somehow they work together to produce a better result but uh yeah i the only only thing and you already know this but i say it for the benefit of our listeners is always when going from a small pot to a larger 
pot. Be sure to check for any roots that are circling around and cut anything that seems to be making a circle around the pot. But, uh, um, yeah, what uh, what kind of trees are you growing that you're moving up to 30-gallon containers? Uh, Monterey oaks, and there's some bur oaks out there. Uh, wow. Mostly. Those, those are my, well, bur oaks are my favorite tree. Monterey's are a little harder to uh keep growing as a central leader but uh right right are just great well i hope you got some good strong young backs to help you because once you get a tree in a 30 gallon container you're looking a little bit of weight out there that's uh you're getting up to where you need a a bobcat or a forklift to move those uh, those babies around 15 gallons is not too bad but 30 gallons you're getting to the serious trees so uh i'll bet they're very popular with the customers too because a well-grown 30 gallon tree is uh really a thing of beauty uh, one more question, Bob, or comment. Uh, last week, one of your um, callers, young lady, called in and said that she had uh, softball-sized tomatoes. She was looking yes, at them on her plants. And I just wanted <laughs> yes. to send a shout-out to her that I weighed one yesterday, and it weighed 20 ounces, so I wonder if that Wow. Was- <laughs> that's uh that's a healthy sized tomato and uh, uh which which variety do you have that's producing them that size that's a big beef that's your big beef one of your uh, grafted ones yes yes uh in the hoop house the celebrities are a little bit smaller uh for some reason the big beef are getting huge this spring well we'll hang a blue ribbon on both you guys yeah, I wanted to give her a shout out and see if she'd uh, she'd got any uh, pound and a quarter uh, tomatoes yet. <laughs> well, James, you keep up the good work, and uh, all the ladies around you wish him a happy Mother's Day, and I'll look forward to our next visit. Thanks for everything you do, Bob. It's always a pleasure, and you as well. Thank you. All right, uh, I tell you what, let me get a quick break out of here so we don't get behind, and then we're going to talk to James and AJ and Lloyd. Right now I get to talk about the Cedar Eater of Texas, and it's just such a pleasure talking about somebody else that does such a good job. You know, I'm not sure exactly how uh, Stan got started with that, but talk about a business that has grown and grown and grown because they provide a wonderful service and they do a very good job of it. And, of course, they're doing more than ever. They started out basically cedar clearing with that machine that cuts off the cedar at ground level and grinds it into a nice mulch all at once with no bulldozing, no burning. And that's still their principal business, principal focus of their business. But they also have a bigger machine now that can take down big trees that may have died of drought or oak wilt before they fall over and cause a problem. They've got that machine that will actually rip mesquite out of the ground by the roots and get rid of it. I mean, the Forest Service calls on them to help out in a lot of situations, highway department. They do work for a lot of people, but they're still focused. Their main focus is you and me and the folks that have cedar that just needs to be gotten rid of because the cedar, of course, chokes out the light that gets to the land, catches the water that should be going to the ground. And boy, what a difference it makes in the property and the soil and the growth that you get out of your native plants and anything else you plant after you have the cedar come in and uh, the cedar eater come in and take down that second growth cedar. If you'd like to learn more, just give them a call. 210-745-2743. That's 210-745-2743 for the Cedar Eater of Texas. 
Here are some of the fantastic reasons people put in an artificial lawn from Artificial Turf Kings. It looks great all year. No more mowing, weeding, or lawn care. No more watering. It's pet and kid friendly. You save time and money. Here are a few more fantastic reasons to contact Artificial Turf Kings. Get a free estimate. Save 40% off installation. Get 0% financing for 12 months. And get a 60-year warranty. A green lawn and no maintenance? Yes. Get your free estimate. Contact Artificial Turf Kings at TurfKingsOfTexas.com. Hi, I'm Holly Hermes. And I'm Mike Hermes. And we're hosts of the What's It Worth show every Saturday afternoon from 3 to 4 right here on KTSA. When I started the show 30 years ago, there was no information. Now, there's so much out there. How do you know what's right and what's wrong? Listen to the father-daughter relationship banter every week. Sponsored by Security Service Title Company. Security Service Insurance Company. And Stevens Roofing. The What's It Worth show, Saturdays from 3 to 4. Paid for by Lose Debts. Attention. This is a special message for anyone who has over $10,000 of unsecured debt, such as credit cards, medical bills, and personal loans. If you're struggling to make minimum payments on your debt, then you're not alone. With the average American household owing over $16,000 in credit card debt, it's no wonder why bankruptcies are on the rise. We're here to help you avoid bankruptcy and keep more money in your pocket. Lose Debts offers a unique debt reset program which will dramatically reduce your debt down to a fraction of what you owe and eliminate any interest, getting you debt-free in as little as 24 months. This is not a loan and there are no upfront fees or out-of-pocket expenses. Speak to our agents now and start fresh at 800-530-7819. We have helped thousands of people with our customized debt reset program. Why not you? You don't pay a dime until we succeed. Call today and see how we can help. 800-530-7819. That's 800-530-7819. Again, 800-530-7819. Right now, we're all thinking about one thing. That's staying safe and keeping our family protected. Although it might seem like most everything has been canceled or ground to a halt, there are businesses out there that are still providing their valuable services, and Stevens Roofing is one of them. So during this time of uncertainty, our friend Edward, the owner of Stevens Roofing, wants everyone to know their office is open, their team is putting great emphasis on cleanliness, sanitizing, and staying safe, keeping everyone as safe as possible. And even though we're all hunkered down, if your house needs maintenance, if you have a leaky roof or missing shingles or repairs, those things need to be taken care of. Stevens Roofing is open and available. Their office is open Monday through Friday, 8 to 5, and they also do all of their estimates and paperwork via email. So ready to help, Stevens Roofing at 210-785-0994. Or visit the website at stevensroofing.net. That's 210-785-0994. This is Mom Radio. Go ahead, caller. You're on the air. Hey, Mom. Long time, first time. It's about time you called your mother. Now what's on your mind? Are you concerned about the way the Democrats uh, are? What I'm concerned about is all those vegetables still on your plate. Well, I... This Mother's Day, win a grand for mom. Enter to win now at KTSA.com. KTSA's $1,000 Mother's Day giveaway. I don't care who started it. Those Democrats are the president. I'm ending it. Powered by Alamo Water Softeners. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, we are back to gardening, and uh, it's going to be AJ and Lloyd and John and Judy. And let's talk to AJ next. Good morning, AJ. Good morning, Bobby. How are we faring this morning? 
Oh, you know, it's uh, it's a beautiful morning, and uh, I can't think of a single negative situation that uh, has come up or is likely to come up. So uh, I'm sure it's a, hopefully, it's a blissfully pleasant Mother's Day around your home as well. Well, yeah, it's it's nice and quiet and calm here this morning for some reason. <laughs> Maybe some other folks just haven't gotten up yet. No, no, we don't need to go there. <laughs> I got a question for you. That that new stuff that Medina came has come out with that something with fish or fish uh, yeah. fertilizer or something. Uh, what's the difference between it and that has to grow garden? It's just it's derived from several different things. They have uh, you know a, a lot of fish emulsion in there. I think they. Uh, uh, whereas Hastergrow has some urea in it, uh, and you know it is it's identical to what is comes along in nature, but because of the cost factor, it is actually synthetic, and that's that's the only reason they can't put a certified organic label on the Hastergrow. And I think for their principal nitrogen source, that in the uh, in their new liquid fish blend, Stuart doesn't tell me everything they put in there, but I think they basically just changed around the nitrogen source a little bit because I was talking to him the other day about uh, getting a certified organic label on it and he was saying all we'll have to do is find uh, certified organic molasses to put into it so it, it's just a little it's got the same benefits but major nutrients are derived from a different source and um, I you know I'm not at the point of saying I like one better than the other but I've kind of been alternating back and forth with the two of them and uh, I've sure got a I've sure got a lot of things growing real well. So uh, uh, I wish I had the time. I wish I had the space to do side by side trials. But at this point, I'll just tell you it's it's a seems to be a really good fertilizer. Can't say that it's better or you know produces any distinctly different results. But I think plants are like people. I think we like a little variety in our diets every now and then. Even if we're eating prime rib, we don't eat it every night. And so I think it's sometimes good to mix it up. And as long as we stay natural and organic, have no problem with that. But uh, I, I just think it's good to alternate back and forth a little bit. And that's what I've been doing. And uh, love to hear your results if you get some up and give it a try. Okay, I'll do that then, Bob. And and you try to keep peace on your end of the line today. And- <laughs> AJ, everybody around, everybody around here is uh, too tired to get into any major trouble. So I think it'll be a, I think it'll be a pretty. Uh, Oh, what you know? When somebody was talking on the news this morning about uh, going back to the to the to the hippie days, so I think the word would use is wasn't it copacetic? Is that what we called everything back then? So I think it's going to be that kind of Mother's Day. So uh, you get out and enjoy and uh, and celebrate and enjoy. All right, Bob. Thank you. It's my pleasure, AJ. Thanks for the call this morning. Uh, Lloyd is up next. Good morning, Lloyd. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. I had a couple questions. Uh, That's what I'm here for. About that Medina liquid fish. Yes. Uh, when you spray that on your tomatoes, how do you mix it up? Is it just a, a like an ounce to a gallon? I actually am using it more as a drench than as a foliar spray. Uh, I had no reason not to use it as a foliar spray, but uh, um, I, I foliar spray, I use a combination of seaweed and molasses is the main thing I use as a foliar spray. The liquid fish is more of a fertilizer, and I'm a bigger believer in in 
soaking roots that I am and spraying the foliage, but I don't think there'd be anything wrong with using it periodically, but I'm going to use it as a drench more than as a spray, and the reason for that is uh, a old friend of mine used to be with USDA, went to a lecture he gave one time, and his comment was, a plant will only grow as much of a root system as it needs to support itself, and we were talking orchids at the time, and we were comparing Phalaenopsis orchids that we were growing, where we always fed by drenching, with uh, some orchids coming in from overseas, where they used uh, entirely foliar sprays, and our plants had 20 times more roots on them than the ones that lived on a foliar spray because, as he said, they don't really need roots. You're giving them everything they need through their leaves. So anything that's more of a fertilizer product, I tend to use as a drench. Anything that's more of a supplement or a micronutrient type of thing, that's what I'm more likely to use as a uh, as a foliar spray. But yeah, whichever way you do it, I think you're fine I... in about a night. I, I fertilize with the has to grow, and I do that uh-huh. as a drench. Uh, I was looking to toughen up the plants for the, um, oh, to to make them more resistant to to the pests. Oh yeah, yeah. I think it would be a great idea. I have no problem at all with that, and I hope you'll report back to me. But I think about an ounce per gallon is going to be about the right mixture to use, whether you're using it for a foliar spray or as a drench. Now, I haven't tried putting it through a sprayer. I have. Uh, I, I put it on with a siphon mixer when I'm using it in a greenhouse. Uh, on those plants and I will say that I I periodically go back and clean that little uptake tube so uh, just you know watch it if you're putting it on as a foliar spray let me know if you see any clogging or any problems like that I, I in this case I would always leave that little strainer that goes down on the bottom of that uptake tube but uh, I'd love to hear what your results are and uh, okay. I don't know that it will have any problem going through the sprayer but I haven't tried it so I can't really comment uh, second question real quick. Uh, yes, sir. I've been having a lot of problems with, uh, I guess, uh, I have a heavenly mulched garden, so I have uh-huh. a thousand places for these little pill bugs <laughs> and stuff to hide on me. Man, yeah. Uh, I seem to keep losing my, my plants. When when I put out that Sluggo Plus, um, is it something that stays there, or do I have to reapply it every time I water? Well, it definitely is impacted <clears throat> to some degree by moisture. So uh, I think there are two ways that you can do it. Uh, if you're going to put it out as a bait, uh, either apply it lightly, and I always water first, let it dry a little bit, and then put it out. Uh-huh. And I wouldn't say I do it every time I water, but I've, I've got the same huge number of pill bugs this year, and, uh, um, and, and I do reapply it probably on about a weekly basis. The other option would be to put it, you know, in a little tray or plant saucer or something like that, and then cover it so that uh, it doesn't get hit by the water. And because it is a bait, it's going to attract the pill bugs to it. And uh, I guess for that matter, you could put it on, you know, on a on a paper plate or something like that, and then just turn a some sort of something upside down that the pill bugs could still get through. But as long as you could keep it dry, I would say you wouldn't have to do it more than once a month. But that's a real good question. I if I were if I'm putting it out where I I'm going to hit it with the water, then I do re- reapply it a little bit more often. But uh, you're just telling me something I need to do. I'd, I probably need to, to put it out on a little platter and uh, turn something upside down that the pill bugs can still get through, but they'll help keep the water off because I, so I think how, that'd keep it. How, how far in between those little platters would you, would you think would be effective? 
Anywhere six to ten feet. Okay. I need to buy a whole bunch of platters. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, it the the pill bugs get around, so uh again I'm just guessing you might start out putting them ten or fifteen feet apart and see how you think that does and then, you know, go back and add one in between if you think you need to. Okay. Uh I had a uh I had some beets I planted in the middle of the winter. Uh-huh. And I had a couple of them uh go to bloom. Yep. With that big long Stalk is probably eight feet tall now. Oh wow, uh, that's a big beach. Is there is there something I need to do to help them pollinate? I don't really. I mean, I see what maybe little bitty flowers uh-huh. uh, on the branches and stuff. But if I want to try to save the seeds off of this, where am I looking to find the seeds? And is there something I need to do to help them? No, I I think they'll I think they'll pollinate fine on their own. Did you plant more than one variety of beet, or are they all the same variety? Uh, yeah, I planted about three different kinds, but in different sections of the garden and at different times. Okay. Well, if they, you may get some, two things may happen. You may get some cross-pollination, which is going to mean that we really don't know how the kids are going to turn out, so to speak. Uh, they may be, you know, a hybrid between two different varieties. And if any of them are newer hybrids, the, the older hybrids that have been inbred generation after generation, they get to be what we call open-pollinated, and they're always going to come back pretty true to what the parents were. But if you take a newer hybrid, tomato or anything else, it's not likely to come true. You're likely to have some variety. still going to be good, but it's not going to be a totally uniform crop. But anyway, to, to your question, up on that bloom spike, you're going to have, oh, I'm looking, holding my fingers apart, probably an eighth of an inch wide. You'll have like a little capsule, and there are going to be four seeds in each one. You, you know how beet seed kind of looks like, oh, kind of rough, almost prickly looking? Yeah. That is actually a seed capsule rather than a seed, and it probably has four seeds in it. And that's one reason we have to thin the beet seedlings when they come up, because nobody's devised a really good way to separate the seed out to where we you know have just individual seeds to plant like we do on radishes and carrots and lots of other things so that little kind of rough looking capsule that you plant as a beet seed that's what you're looking for to form on that uh, flower spike okay and i'll probably just wait till the whole thing kind of dies off and then dries up before i I go to start harvesting any of them? Yeah, wait until it appears to be drying. Once it appears to be drying, then the seed will be fully mature. You can harvest it at any time. It's not like tomato seed that you have to wash the jelly off of and then spread out on parchment to dry. Uh, You do want to be sure that the seeds are quite dry before you store them, though. So I would spread them out, you know, in a dry place. And, again, I like – some people use wax paper. I use parchment because it's just – Oh, just as cheap and I think a little bit easier to handle. But once that seed's dry, put it in a little envelope, uh, put that envelope in a mason jar or something in the refrigerator, and your seed will be totally viable and good next fall or spring whenever you plant more beets. Yeah, I was uh, I was pretty impressed with this. I, I had never seen one actually go to bloom before. Uh-huh. And it, uh, it, it's definitely a, a, a showpiece in the garden right now. 
<laughs> well, I have I have let them go to bloom, but I've never had one that was six or eight feet tall. Mine always seemed to stop at about 18 inches. Maybe I just take them out before they get any bigger. But uh, uh, you get the blue ribbon this year for, for that, and I'll be interested to hear how your seed collection goes. It started leaning, so I propped it up with about a six-foot-tall rebar and taped it to it, and it's it's towering about almost two and a half, three feet above that. So that would make it the leaning tower of Beatsa, I guess, or something. (laughs) There you go. Well, let me know how it works out. I think you're doing great with it, Lloyd. All right, I'll give it a try. I appreciate the call. Thank you, sir. (laughs) Goodbye. All right, back to gardening. We're going to talk to John and Judy and Elroy and Shirley, and uh, John is up first. Good morning, John. Oh, good morning. Uh, thank you so much for taking my calls. Uh, well, thank you for calling. Questions here. Oh, yes, sir. Really, I appreciate it. Uh, when it comes to mulch, what's the best mulch to use? There seems to be different kinds, and how do I choose a proper mulch? <clears throat> I have a drip irrigation system, which I really haven't covered properly, and I'm thinking that's probably why it's not as efficient as it should be. Well, that's an excellent question, and... I guess the best way to answer it is to talk about the different things that mulches do. Probably number one, they insulate the soil. They keep the soil as much as 20 degrees cooler than the soil would be in the middle of the summer out in you know, hot, hot sunlight. They tend mm-hmm. to suppress weed growth. They, As they slowly break down, they add some nutrient to the soil, and uh, to some degree, they add some microbial activity. So when we look at the different mulches, and a mulch is defined basically as just something that's on the surface of the soil, when we look at just ground-up tree limbs, when we look at... uh, Oh, you know, they even use uh, various kinds of mineral materials like lava sand as a mulch. Uh, They use pure compost as a mulch. Just about anything that you put out there, excuse me, got uh, something in my throat this morning. Uh, They all serve the purposes of being an insulative layer and being a weed suppressant. Now, your better mulches will have some compost in them, which uh, will add, you know, more microbial life and, in effect, add a small amount of nutrient to the soil. And some of them, oh gosh, you know, like like pure compost, uh, they're going to break down relatively quickly, which is going to supply a lot of nutrient to the soil, whereas something like your, your more fibrous wood material doesn't bring in the microbial life, doesn't add the nutrient. When you're looking at one of the rock minerals, then obviously you're not getting... You may be getting a different benefit through what we call cation exchange. It may help in holding the fertilizer. So to me, the very best mulch out there is probably what they call a living mulch, which is where they've taken a ground-native wood material and then added some compost to it. But then let's look at the practicality. If you need a huge amount of mulch and don't want to spend a lot of money, go out to the brush dump because what they have is basically free 
and it's going to serve those two purposes of suppressing the weeds and cooling the soil. Uh, so, you know, obviously the the mulches that are sold at the discount houses and things like that, uh, they all provide those services of suppressing weeds and insulating the soil. Now, I don't like dyed mulches because the, the dyed mulches, uh, the dye is somewhat toxic. So I'd rather see just a ground-up uh, material. When you look at woody mulches, I would look at where they are made because the best materials are the materials that are local. In other words, if we're living in an area of mostly oaks and elms and maybe pecans, the best mulch out there would be ground up oaks, um, you know, elms and pecans, as opposed to having a mulch made out of pine trees from East Texas. By the same token, in East Texas, a ground up pine mulch is probably going to be better than the mulch that would be made from the trees in this area. So it's sometimes good to look at the bag and see where it comes from. But uh, even if it's from a different area, again, you still get those same two benefits. You get the insulation, you get the weed suppression, but if you get a local material, you're getting you're getting a material that'll put a lot of the nutrients back into the soil that our local trees need. If you get a local material with compost added to it, you're going to pay substantially more for it. But that's kind of the cream of the crop with mulches. So I guess to uh, not belabor the point anymore, but all mulches are good. But the best mulches are the ones that have some life, that have the potential to break down more quickly. But where you do in a big area, it's perfectly understandable that you have to balance cost, you know, with the result. And uh, any kind of uh, ground organic material to me is going to be is going to make a good mulch. Okay, that makes sense. Now, what, yeah, oh yeah, it, it does. Now, um, and as far as in the spring when you have leaves and something. Uh, I, I guess leaving the leaves on there is probably a good idea rather than trying to rake them up and redistribute and things like oh, ab- that. Or do you- absolutely. That was that was one of uh, Malcolm Beck's original lessons to me. He said those trees have got roots way deep down into the ground, and they're bringing up minerals and other things that your grasses and things don't have access to because their roots aren't that deep. And then the trees are putting them back on, putting the leaves back on the surface of the ground, and in effect putting those minerals back where all the plants can benefit from them so yeah i'm a big believer in leaving the leaves where they are Uh, when it comes to breaking down obviously the more surface area is the faster they break down so i think if you run your lawnmower through them and chop them up a little bit number one they don't blow away as badly and number two you're exposing more surface area for the microbes to begin decomposing them so yeah i like to chop them up but i definitely leave the leaves in place Okay, and then on the drip cycle and the sprinkler cycle, um, the, uh, the sprinkler people, essay uh, rain, as a matter of fact, you recommended to me, uh, said on the drip twice a week, about an hour uh, a cycle, and the sprinkler okay. once a week, about an hour on each zone. Does that sound reasonable? <laughs> I'm proud of them for telling you that because that's exactly what I would say. <laughs> Most sprinkler companies, they want it to come on four times a week because you want to look out there and be, be really glad you paid them all the money to do it. But uh, the only the only modification to that, uh, and they know their, their product, uh, but I always tell people, be sure you put out about an inch of water at a time. SA Rainmaker is still the best company I've found, and I hope they did a real good job for you. Yeah. But uh, oh, if 
If, if you're putting out about an inch of water, which I would expect from one of their systems in an hour, then I think uh, I, I would not change a thing on that. I think uh, an hour at a time on the drip, an hour at a time uh, letting the sprinkler run. Only thing that I would ever modify is if you had a real highly sloped yard or something like that and let's say you thought the water started running off after 30 minutes i'd let it let it run for 30 minutes shut off for an hour and then run for another 30 minutes because uh sometimes on a slope situation you need to spread it out a little bit so the water doesn't run off but on a flat yard no just run it for an hour at a time once a week and that's going to work whether it's bermuda st augustine zoysia whatever kind of grass you have out there now in in beds where you may have trees and shrubs there and i suspect that's where you've got your drip so uh you may even want to let that run a little bit longer to be sure you're soaking the soil very deeply but um it sounds to me like you're on the right track with everything there okay and this one i think is good for everyone and i appreciate all your time what's the difference between has to grow and super thrive well has to grow is a fertilizer it contains, by definition, fertilizers contain at least, uh, they contain three major nutrients, nitrogen, phosphate, and potassium. And on a fertilizer, you'll always see those three numbers, and they're always in that order, nitrogen, phosphate, potassium. And we call those macronutrients. They're the things that plants need in big quantities. And then we have things that plants only need a small amount of. We used to call them trace elements. Now we call them micronutrients. And Super Thrive does not have any measurable amount of uh, nitrogen, phosphorus, or potassium, so it's not really a fertilizer. We would consider it more like a vitamin supplement in that it's got a lot of micronutrients. Plus, they add, and of course, it's all proprietary. I have no idea what all they put in there, but I feel like they put a lot of B vitamin in there because it smells like B vitamin. Those are very definitely good for plants. They put a very small amount of a rooting hormone called indolbutyric or indolacetic acid. And, um, in fact, that's the only reason they can't call it organic is because the IBA is, uh, is synthetic. But just, just think of Super Thrive as uh, a vitamin tonic. Think of uh, Hestergrow as the main meal. And uh, that'll, that should, that, that's about as clear as I, clearly as I can state it. Makes okay, sense. So for a new plant, you'd start with has to grow to get it established and then occasionally mm-hmm. use a super thrive. Uh, that is what I would do when you first plant a plant. In all honesty, after that, my main use of super thrive is if something has been shocked, if something's gotten missed in a watering cycle, if something's gotten eaten down by the deer or broken up by the dog. I think any plant that is shocked one way or another, the super thrive really helps it come out, as you may have heard me say. My original introduction to super thrive was way back when I worked with Alton Grimm. We got in a shipment of... Uh, cuttings of a little plant called Pachystace or lollipop that had been delayed in shipment and there were 300 brown dead looking twigs in this box and I said Alton are these things dead do we just throw them away and he said oh no we'll plant them up and water them in with Super Thrive and to my great amazement 296 out of 300 actually came out and grew when I thought they were dead to begin with so I won't promise that in every case but uh this stuff is uh, it produces some amazing results. I I think the bottle is just a joke. It makes it sound like fish oil, but I've <laughs> yeah, you know I've been using it for a long time, and uh, I've seen plants come back that I would not given a, have given a lot of 
of chance of making it. So, uh, yeah, it's not a fertilizer, but there are times when it uh, when it really does benefit things. Great. Well, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for all your time, and uh, keep listening. Thank you. Appreciate it, John. Thank you very much, too. All right, back to gardening on a gorgeous, gorgeous Mother's Day Day morning. And uh, next three callers are Judy and Elroy and Shirley. Judy is up first. Good morning and happy Mother's Day. Hi, Bob. (laughs) Um, I have a question for you. This is the uh, first year I've really planted potatoes. Uh And I have a little marble-sized looking uh tomato looking thing coming <laughs> off my potato plant. Uh-huh. Down down at ground have... level. No, it's coming off the stalk and it's uh halfway up. Okay. Um that's unusual but not totally uncommon unfortunately because it's up where the sun hits it uh it's going to have some chlorophyll in it which means it's not really going to be uh any good to eat you can leave it on you can break it off it's never really going to do you know anything uh, i mean up on top you occasionally may even get a little seed pod produced are you seeing any flowers on your potatoes at this point no yeah if I you do pinch them off potatoes. okay but, but this looks like a little tomato. It's it's is that a seed pod? It could be. Uh, potatoes and tomatoes are very closely related. Believe it or not, they're what we call nightshades. But nobody grows uh, nobody grows potatoes from seed. And if it you know if it's hanging down and, and does indeed look like a little tomato, it uh, could very well be a seed pod on there. But not really anything. I mean, you can leave it and watch it just as a curiosity, but it's not going to produce anything that I would try to grow more potatoes from, and it's certainly not anything that's going to go on the dinner table. Yeah, okay. I was just curious. <laughs> yeah, normally you would have seen a cluster of little purplish flowers, uh, sort of a well, more of a violet color flower before you would have a seed pod, but, you know, sometimes those things get buried down in the leaves, so... Uh, Uh, unusual but not unheard of okay thanks a lot i hope you've enjoyed the little potatoes that you've been picking out there i have they're really good Uh, and you can you can go on you know it'll be probably another month your plants will start to die back and at that point it's time to uh dig them and harvest them and you'll find you know bigger potatoes down at the bottom but if you want to go on just probing around with your finger and pulling out some little uh, golf ball sized potatoes around the edges uh, no reason to have to wait and get them all at one time you continue to enjoy as they grow and uh what i do yeah well you just keep up the good work and uh let me know any way you can help okay thank you Bye-bye. thank you judy goodbye all right up fredericksburg way elroy is next good morning elroy morning good morning sir yeah, I got a question for you. Okay, I, I, I got help today to to spray my tomatoes, and I haven't steeped uh, cornmeal. How uh-huh. long does it have to steep? Um, it would really, I would say, about eight hours would be good. Now, um, the trichoderma starts to grow almost immediately, so. Uh, you could use it at almost any point, but uh, 
Eight hours is pretty much ideal to get a pretty good culture growing. Uh, overnight is fine. After about oh, 48 hours, it starts losing quality. So you can do it any time. Uh, ideally, wait eight hours, uh, and then any time between eight hours and 36 hours, pretty much going to be the, the peak period for applying. And what oil can you add to it? I know I usually add some oil. I mean, some uh, molasses and yeah, some other add a little, stuff. add a little molasses, add a little liquid seaweed. Um, you can add a little bit of liquid fertilizer if you like. You just, uh, uh, I know Howard Garrett would add a little bit of uh, apple cider vinegar, just a small amount. But all of those things are taking taking something good and turning it into something even better. Well, I've. I've I haven't got much early blight, but I've got one or two plants that show just a little bit, just right. two or three leaves down at the bottom. So I figured it'd be a good thing to spray the whole thing. You're absolutely I mean, right. Not, and, I, and I would pick off those two or three leaves that are showing it. Uh, but, no, I think I think you benefit your plants in a lot of ways, not only preventing more of the early blight, but just increasing the quality, increasing the sugar level, the f- taste of the tomatoes. So uh, you've got a great project. Okay. And uh, how often do you apply the cornmeal on, on base of the plant? I generally just do it once at about the time that I plant the plant. Now, if I have more problems showing up, then I will reapply it, you know, maybe a couple of months later. What, what you're trying to prevent, the early blight, the spores that create early blight reside in the soil. And when we get heavy rains, which we certainly haven't had, or when we're doing a lot of overhead watering, that material gets splashed up onto the lower leaves and that's how it gets started now if we have some cornmeal down on the soil the trichoderma growing on that gets rid of a lot of that early blight that might be in the soil and reduces the chance that the plants will be infected so um it it wouldn't hurt to do it i don't think it's really necessary until the plants have been growing at least six or eight weeks after the first time you applied it but if you want to apply it every couple of months there's certainly nothing wrong with that and i i think you would get some good results from it even after you've watered it it's still effective yes sir yes sir in fact it takes the water to activate so to speak it's not the cornmeal that does the magic. It's this trichoderma fungus, which is a highly beneficial fungus that grows on the cornmeal, and it doesn't really start growing until the cornmeal gets wet or gets put in water. So uh, wetting your cornmeal makes it more effective rather than less effective. So if I steep it now and spray it late this afternoon, be it perfect. might work. Yeah. might work, but it'd be better if it overnight, but... Uh, I can't now, do that because if you got help this afternoon, go for it this afternoon. You'll be you'll be doing real well. Okay. Well, thank you a lot. It's always a pleasure. Always good to talk to you, Roy. Thank you, sir. Okay. Bye. All right. I'm about uh, 50 seconds away from news time here, Shirley, and I don't want to rush you, so you will be up first after the news. 
on this beautiful Mother's Day. You know, people working in the vegetable gardens, it is just now time to plant okra. If you planted it early, these cool mornings, it may be a little bit stunted. But if you're looking for something to plant in the vegetable garden today, get out and plant some okra. A lot of people are thinking about planting more tomatoes if you can find them. At this point, I only recommend planting the cherry tomatoes because they don't, and I don't care whether it's uh, what color they are, whether it's the yellows, the reds, or the purples, but uh, they are the only ones that continue to set fruit when the nights get hot. Your big fruited tomatoes pretty much stop setting fruit when the nights are hot, and we're getting pretty close to that point. Those plants wouldn't have time to grow up to producing size before they would stop setting fruit. So stick to the cherries uh, on tomatoes, all kinds of peppers, still time to plant them. We'll talk about more next hour here on KTSA Radio. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. And it might be a good time to grab an open line. You know, his phone numbers stay awfully busy because a lot of people are trying to get through. But I think we've got a line open right this second. So uh, you just heard the number, 210-599-5555. It is Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to all the ladies out there. And uh, hope you're going to spend at least part of this beautiful day outside, whether it's gardening or picnicking and uh, small groups, of course. We still have certain guidelines we, we need to follow. But uh, days like like this uh, this late in the spring just don't come along very often so get out and take advantage of it next caller is shirley good morning shirley how can i help you today good morning bob how are you doing i just doing really well i hope you are as well i am so far um <laughs> <laughs> i've got mother's, uh, mother's day should be a perfect day for all you ladies i hope it hope it works out that way for you <laughs> well, I'm not a mama, but my mama is, and she's 98 years old. And, oh, goodness. Uh, she's still, yeah, she works out in her garden just about every day. Still. That's, uh, that's what keeps her going, at least to some degree. I, yeah, I think the way to keep on keeping on is to, just to do what you do, and um sounds like you've got some good genes. And, uh, you know, whether you're a mama to four-legged kids or two-legged kids or just to your plants, uh, I still think you still deserve to celebrate Mother's Day. I was at uh, Shades of Green yesterday to find something for her. It's always a challenge to find something that she doesn't already have. But <laughs> at ninety-eight, I can imagine. <laughs> but I managed to find three little plants to to give to her today for Mother's Day. So she well, very good. Um, my neighbor has a lovely orange tree, and it's uh, close to uh, where I park. Um, it's about four or five years old. Um, and because she cut it back one year, it's growing more into a bush than a tree. And I'd say it's about six feet tall, six feet wide. Um, okay. And I uh, had a lot of oranges last year. And it has a lot of new little oranges coming up now. They're all maybe large marble size. But I okay. noticed that a lot of them, you know, a lot of them are dropping on the ground. And I was kind of wondering why that might be. And then I noticed that uh, some of her leaves are uh, discolored. And right. so I went over to examine it, and I think uh, I, I may be the culprit because where I park, <laughs> the exhaust uh -huh. from my car, I think, is covering her tree. And well, so you, I, don't, I, you don't sit there idling your car for a long period of time, though, do you? No, not very long, but uh, but but I always park there every day. <laughs> so it's well, I getting a little bit of exhaust. 
It might be, but surely I don't think that has anything to do with it. I think more than likely on both the, the discoloration on the leaves and dropping some fruit, it's a, it's a water issue because uh, we've had piddly little rains that have wet the surface of the soil and helped the weeds grow. But you dig down six inches, you're going to find powder dry soil. We have not had, most of us have not had a really soaking rain practically in a year. So if you want to improve, <laughs> if you want to mitigate uh, the supposed exhaust damage, which well, I think is largely imaginary, I wouldn't, wouldn't lose any sleep over that. But if you want to do something nice for that tree, just drag your hose over there turn it on slowly and let it run all night really work at saturating that soil two or three feet deep which where is where the tree's roots are and uh, that's going to do more to help the tree than anything else um, if you suspect that she has neglected or been too busy to fertilize uh, you also might sneak a little good organic fertilizer around nobody could object to that but i think the the symptoms that you're describing on that tree match up to me a whole lot more with staying a little too dry than they do with uh, exhaust. Um, well, I didn't clarify on that discoloration. It's actually uh-huh. a, a film a film on the leaves because I rubbed my summer around uh, one of the um, sides of the leaves and it rubbed off. So I, I actually do is think it, it's covered. <laughs> okay. Is, is, it, uh, is it shiny or is it more of a kind of a sooty black? I'm sorry. What was the last comment you said? Is is the is the uh, the covering that you're seeing on the leaves? Is it uh, sort of shiny or is it more of kind of a, a sooty black covering? Okay, it, it's sooty black. It's not shiny. Okay. Once again, and again, you know, if you examine that tree carefully, if it was only on the side toward the driveway, then uh, maybe it might have something to do with the exhaust. But sooty black on uh, on citrus leaves is a very common condition when the tree has some insect, either a uh, a fruit tree or a, a citrus scale or even aphids, those insects leave behind a sugary excretion, and then you have a uh, just a black mold that grows on that that would wipe off, especially if you moisten your finger before you rub it. But once again, uh, I, 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 think you're, I think you're picking on your car more than you need to because that just doesn't sound like the culprit. Now, if you want to help the tree out, get a little bit of spinosad soap or something like that and give it a good spray because that will take care of the aphids or the scale. But um, I, again, uh, we're not dealing. We're not dealing with Henry Ford's day when when engines didn't run relatively clean and and have catalytic converters. But uh, anything that affected the plant would be would be totally invisible. So if you're seeing a particulate matter on the leaves, I think it's going to be a black mold growing there, not anything that's coming out of your car's exhaust. Well, that makes me feel a lot better. Um, but my ultimate question was, uh, what can I uh, – you mentioned the spin- spinosad, but uh, is there another solution I could use to go out there and wash the leaves off? Uh, well, it's, it's actually – it's spinosad soap. Uh, I like much better than straight spinosad. Uh, spinosad is uh, – 
spinosad, let me say it right. Uh, spinosad is the active ingredient, but the spinosad soap contains an insecticidal soap as well, which is cleansing, but it also tends to suffocate scale and other insects. So uh, the spinosad soap would be a good leaf cleaner along with uh, being a product that will take care of insect problems in a non-toxic fashion is very very safe for people and pets it's not going to affect the your ability to enjoy the fruit and not going to hurt uh you know anything else out there but uh, that that would be my choice to clean with and then you get the secondary benefit of controlling the scale as well Oh, wonderful. Okay, well, that'll be and my can, next purchase at your nursery. Yeah, and you, you can buy it in a little ready-to-use container. You don't even have to do any mixing or anything like that because, uh, and I, I mean, I keep a bottle of it literally when I'm out working around my garden. I, many times, especially later in the summer, I have a bottle of it in hand to take care of little stink bugs and things like that that show up. So uh, really product, real useful product, really safe product. But uh, go pat your car on the hood and apologize for having blamed it for something that I don't think is his fault. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm going to do that. Thank you so much, All right. Bob. It's a pleasure. It's good to talk to you. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, it's going to be Carla and Steve and uh, Virgil next, and Carla is up next. Good morning, Carla. Good morning, and happy anniversary to your nurse. And ha- thank you, um, and happy Mother's Day to you. Thank you. I appreciated that you included animals, um, and I think maybe we should also include mothering plants. Uh, I totally agree. <laughs> and, and anyhow, um, I had a question first about Howard's class, because you were talking about it yesterday, and it sounds like he still had the two-for-one yeah, two um, going. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah, it, it is right now, right? And it is. I, it it so is I, really. It is. Yeah, the class has been up there all along. It's a series, I think, of ten videos, which run from thirty minutes to a little over an hour. Uh, and I don't know how long he'll be running this uh, two for one special, but the class is up there indefinitely. It's just right now with so many people bored to death <laughs> trying to work from home. Right. Uh, he and he and his partner just thought it would be a good time to add a little incentive. So yes, it uh, and for the foreseeable future, it is going to be uh, the the two for one deal and and it's you will gain a lot of knowledge i i have watched most of it i have trouble finding an hour at a time to sit down and look at a computer screen but everything i have looked at has uh, has been very useful and i will certainly to admit to having learned some things from watching it so uh, i think it's a very good thing to do well i was thinking about since it was two for one getting uh uh um the second one for my dad for Father's Day. And I talked uh-huh. to him about it yesterday. And his question is, well, I would he would like to do it, but this time of year he's out in the garden all day. And sure. he wonders how long he has to complete the course if if he if he did it. You know, if, oh, we, if we signed up for both of us, can he do it sure. in the fall? He can do it any time <laughs> he likes. There's, there's no time limit at all. And... Uh, uh, if there were ever a question, uh, you can talk to Howard or talk to Doug, who is, so to speak, his business partner in it. But I think I think we talked about that yesterday, and he indicated that there was uh, no time restriction. You sign up for it, and you watch. You you can spread it out, watching it one or two lessons a month. 
you can wait and do it all in the fall. You do it when it's convenient for you to sit in front of a computer and watch it. That's what I thought, but I just wanted to check. And then I have a second question that that emerged, um, and I think that it was sort of answered with the talk about the the. Um, well, the question is um, that I have this Texas ebony that has been growing as a start, and I was always going to nurture it along and then use it as a bonsai sometime. And mm-hmm. I found yesterday that it had gotten cut off. And so I I dug it down, dug out down pretty far on the root. It has more than just a tap root. Um, uh-huh. So I'm trying to see if I can, can start it. But it was cut maybe an inch above the ground. Do I have any hope on that? Oh, yeah. You have very strong hope. I'm going to give you at least 80% okay. chance of having it come out. I think the uh, Super Thrive that I talked with the caller earlier yeah, might be a good thing thinking. to do. And Texas Ebony makes a beautiful bonsai. It's not cold-hardy, so it's not something you can leave out year-round. But uh, it's one of the prettiest little trees. Uh, they, of course, uh, grow outside down in the Rio Grande Valley. But, golly, it's it's just a gorgeous little bonsai specimen. Yeah, mine have, mine have come. I taught down in the Rio Grande Valley for a while, and so I... I have mulch from my tree down there, and I have a big one in my yard, too, that's oh, very been good. there for 10 years now. Um, and let's see, one more, oh, one more question. I have a McGay, uh, uh, um, the, the Americana, the mm-hmm. um, agave, and yeah. it is, it's sent up its shoot, and it's getting that cathedral thing to bloom, uh-huh. and I had, I had put a picture out for my friends on Facebook, and I got a reply that that some, you know, someone's mother or whatever always said that they bloom together at the same time, and that there is a friend in Portland whose one is blooming, and somewhere else in the country whose one is about to bloom. Is there? Have you heard that? Do you? I, it was such an intriguing idea, and I mean, it does seem like the end and beginning of an era to me. So. Well, uh, but I it's... didn't have any idea they would do it with each other. And I saw one over on Culebra. My neighbor told me about one that just finished blooming. So I, as a think? scientist, as a scientist, I I can't you know tell you yes or no. As a person right. who thinks I don't have to understand everything in the world, um, I will tell you anything is possible. Just a a personal note that I don't think I've ever mentioned on the air before. Uh, about, uh, what's it been now, 10, 11 years ago, my mother passed away. She had given a bulb uh, of a of a plant, a lily, out of her yard to an aunt of mine in, in Arlington, Texas. And lo and behold, the first time that bulb bloomed was on the day my mom had passed. And at her memorial oh service God. in East Tennessee, I told this story at the service, and one of her neighbors came over to me and just almost looked a little shocked. And she said, your mom gave me a piece of that same plant. And mine also bloomed on the same day for the first time. So, you know, like I say, I it's kind of an emotional thing. But I, I don't have to understand it to uh, believe that there's some things out there we don't understand. So if your mom thinks that's the case, maybe it is. I'm not going to comment one way or the other, but uh, plants, uh, there, there's things out there we don't understand, and that's not a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I have heard of the, the McGay sort of blooming as 
and dying as um, someone else on my side. I'm on Martin Street, and one of the uh-huh. older ladies, her her parents. Um, I think it, it. I don't. I don't remember the whole story. But I know that the that the McGay died the same year her dad did, and she felt interesting. Like it. Again, it was a well, passing of an era. So, yeah, and and you know, with don't don't pull up your plant just because it's bloomed. It is going to die after it blooms, but they many times make many, many little plantlets <laughs> like all those kids around. Oh, yeah. And they make many little uh, things that will come up and carry on the tradition. So, anyway, well, listen, Carly, you have a wonderful okay. Mother's Day yourself, and uh, always Thank a pleasure you. talking to you. Thank you. Goodbye. All right, let's get back to gardening once again. It's going to be Steve and Virgil and Marion and Marilyn and James, Steve is first. Good morning, Steve. Morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Quick things. Uh, yesterday, you and Howard were talking about using hair uh, to try to um, <clears throat> keep the uh, repel. Yeah, five bores. Uh huh. So, well, today's my haircut day. So, that <laughs> sounded like a good option. So, I'm just going to gather up and sprinkle it around the plants. How to, how I will. I will look forward to hearing back from you how it works. It is hair is basically almost pure protein, and it's actually a very good fertilizer. At one time, there was a company working with the military bases, which collect a lot of long hair when those heads get buzzed, and uh, they were actually converting it into a fertilizer at one point. So it, you're not going to lose anything. You're going to gain some benefit, and I'll be very interested in hearing if it is effective in repelling the boar moth. Uh, We'll just have to see on that one. Yeah. Is that the technique you're talking about, just sprinkling it around the base of the plant? Just just sprinkle around the base of the plant. That's it. Pretty easy. Okay. Well, just um, for for the benefit of of the listeners, I've had some pretty good success with the mechanical control. You have to be out there every day inspecting Uh them. I've found them in there, and as soon as they see... A little hole with some droppings. I've been able to, you know, it's kind of gross, but dig dig those guys out with a toothpick. You can and, do that. Um, I've actually known people to split the stem with a razor blade uh, to make it easier to extract. And, you know, as long as you're doing it longitudinally along the stem, it uh, doesn't really seem to hurt. But, yes, if... Uh, um, you're exactly right. If you're, <laughs> let's just say, if you're able to get down and up close and uh, personal with those things, yes. If you find that little hole, you can go after them. It, I, I think, it's easiest on zucchini because the stem's pretty solid. Your crook necks tend to have a much more hollow stem, and that little bore can move a lot further, a lot more quickly. But uh, yeah, you, have to, you have to get them right away. You kind of have to watch yeah. it pretty much every day. Yeah, you know you have to get them right away. Anyway, so just um, well, my next question is real quick. I've got a pretty good crop of potatoes this year, and yes, sir. Uh, since I'm working, everybody's working from home. I I don't I can't go uh, gift them away to the folks at work. So what's the best <laughs> way for me to store those uh, without having them? You know, trying to sprout and all that stuff. Uh, red skin or brown skin? They're 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 white ones. Okay. Um, but are they are they like Yukon gold kind of thing or something? Okay, you know, with the brown skin types, if you actually leave them in the ground an extra week or so after the plant starts to die back, it toughens the skin and they keep better. I have not found that to be the case with the with the red potatoes, red pony, uh, red Lasota, things like that. Um, I I you know 
dig them and I don't wash them because I think water shortens the storage life. I will brush the dirt off of them and of course before I cook them and eat them uh, then I'm going to wash them at that point. So harvest them dry um, and you know just store them in a place with good air circulation and relatively cool temperatures. Room temperature inside your home or pantry is going to be just fine. Um, You're always going to have a little sprouting if you store them for a long time but um uh just harvesting them dry is important and like i say on the on the ones that have the browner skin uh if you leave them in the ground uh, as long as it's not just raining 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 if you leave them in the ground for a week or two after the top start to die back well malcolm beck taught me that it really toughens the skin and that will extend the shelf life out to probably six months or so the red skins uh you know Find a lot of good things to do with potatoes because they're not going to keep as well. But, uh, again, just dry clean and uh, with good air circulation around them. Don't don't pile them up in a bag. And uh, I use, I've got some of those old plastic uh, cold drink trays that they used to deliver soft drinks in. And uh, I can just, you know, put a layer of potatoes in there, put another tray on top, another layer of potatoes. And that's how I store them when I have a surplus. Okay, sounds good. I appreciate the advice. Thanks, Bob. Always a pleasure. Good to talk to you. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, uh, Virgil is up to get next. Good morning, Virgil. Morning. Morning, um, sir. I've, I've got a goji berry plant. Uh-huh. That I just um, bare root, and okay. I just need to find out what's the best way to keep that sucker alive and going. Well, I would pot, I would plant it. It doesn't really matter whether you put it in a pot or in the ground. Um, it is easier to maintain in the ground, uh, because, you know, it's easier to maintain even a watering and the soil doesn't get as hot as it does up in a pot. So I would plant it in an area that gets at least two thirds of the day's sun, um, and, you know, water with any good, natural liquid fertilizer and um, should not be a problem for you they grow uh, i've not grown them i just you know my their time is just <laughs> i haven't taken time to plant them is what it amounts to but i know people that have grown them here and done pretty well with them all right that's what i need to find out thank you much you report back to me on how you do with them i'd love to learn from your experience all right thank you you're welcome virgil thank you and goodbye all right, back to gardening on this beautiful Mother's Day Sunday out there. <laughs> it's just, uh, I tell you what, weather, weather, this is one of the reasons we live in South Texas for days like this. Back to the phone lines, uh, Marilyn James will be my next two callers. Good morning, Marilyn. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I was wondering, what's the best fertilizer for orchid plants? You know, I use uh, the Has to Grow by Medina, and I'm alternating it with that new liquid fish by Medina. I know that Happy Frog from Fox Farms, they make a couple of liquid fertilizers that I've known people that do well with, but... Uh, I'm growing some best orchids I've ever grown, and I, I started with orchids as a science fair project in the eighth grade. So I've um, been growing them a long time, and I've never found anything better than the uh, has-to-grow has to grow plant. Okay, I have that, and liquid seaweed and molasses. Yeah, so liquid seaweed and molasses are 
Yeah, the has to grow is a fertilizer where liquid seed and wheat and molasses are more or less uh, sort of a tonic. They're not really a fertilizer. So, you know, the has to grow plant is going to be your main meal. If you want to make okay. up, uh, you know, like a, a liquid spray, I use about uh, two tablespoons seaweed, one tablespoon of molasses to a gallon of water. And I use that as a foliar spray for, you know, everything in the greenhouse and everything in the garden as well. But for a basic fertilizer, I think you do very well with has to grow plant. Okay, great. And the, what's best for the tomatoes? I use the same thing. I Now, okay. on my everything in the vegetable garden, whether it's uh, the okra, which is just going in this time of year, or whether it's the, uh, uh, you know, the chard that I planted way back when it was still pretty chilly, I work in a dry fertilizer, you know, before I actually plant. I figure that's going to be a slow, steady source of nutrient for probably at least 90 days. But, uh, and again, it may be the Medina growing green or it may be the nature's creation of what they call premium lawn food. Both of those are just good organic fertilizers. And I work those in before I plant. And then for a follow up, uh, I use the Hestro plant in the vegetable garden as well. Okay, well, that sounds like I'm on the right track then. Sounds like if you're like me, you'll start getting it by the gallon instead of by the quart. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just, unfortunately, uh, I have to fight the deer off, so. Oh, now there—that's—that's that's a whole different situation, and uh, yeah. uh, the only thing I've ever found that works is a high fence. But uh, yeah. there, there are some new things out there, or some new techniques, I might say. Uh, the Parks and Wildlife people came up with a oh a deal that they do using three electric wires uh and they they're sort of offset they don't have to be super tall but they've had pretty good luck in keeping deer out of areas uh and of course electric fence is just great for you know cattle and horses and other things too but around my garden still have a seven and a half foot fence is how i keep them out because i've just not found anything else that works well okay well i might check into that well thank you so much well it's always a pleasure you have a happy mother's day and i appreciate the call this morning Thank you. All right, uh, next up will be James. Good morning, James. Good morning, Mr. Upton. Morning, sir. This morning? I'm well, thank you. All right, good deal. I've got a question about, I've got some pecan trees out here that are, uh, I'm, I'm out here at Pipe Creek. No, they're not yes, sir. Uh, extremely old, but I've noticed that the past few years they've had some blisters appear on the leaves. And yep. then uh, they just kind of burst open and they don't seem to uh, affect the fruit harvest or anything. No. But no, that, just a I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, those are a little wasp gall. It's actually a little insect gall on the leaf. Some years they're worse than others, but as you so accurately identified, they don't affect the pecans at all. They sure do distort the foliage, but it does seem to hurt them because, you know, leaf still has plenty of green chlorophyll, and it's just ugly as can be. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't doesn't affect the doesn't affect the pecan. Well, we need some good deep, thorough soaking rain, so we'll get a good crop this summer. But don't worry about those little blisters. Not not in cause for concern. Okay. Well, I've also noticed that on some of my young younger oak trees out here that uh, I have not seen before. But the other day I was out there and there was actually a, some brown worms chewing on the leaves. And mm-hmm. then uh, closer inspection, I found a couple of smaller, well, several smaller uh, green worms eating uh, eating away and. And now there's there's blisters on the oak leaves. That young trees. Well, and it's more on the red oaks than it is on the live oaks. If your ranch is like mine, because I'm not too far away from you, I'm on the road between Bernie and Pipe Creek. But um, 
I, I, you know, my business partner and I are just calling this the year of the caterpillar. I have never seen so many different kinds of caterpillars and uh, so many number-wise. I Some of these big old fuzzy things, uh, I, you know, I was picking them off my comfrey last night. I, well, they're just, I, I've never seen so many of them. If it's an area that you want to use a spray, you have two choices. Uh, the spinosad will kill them on contact, and it's a good caterpillar killer. The BT that we have used for so many years is a stomach poison to caterpillars. I don't use it widely because it kills them all, and I, you know, I don't want to... Oh, yeah. I want to kill the moth caterpillars because most of those moths are pretty nondescript. But uh, the other thing that I think is quite important is, uh, you know, don't do anything to bother your wasp nest. This is the time of year that we have the yellow jackets, and I still don't like the red wasps, but the red and black wasps, what they feed on and what they actually build their nest out of is chewed up caterpillars. And, uh, it's and you know, I well, Malcolm Beck was visiting... Oh, years ago, and I live in an old two-story home with a balcony around three sides upstairs. And Malcolm walked around, and I think he counted 105 wasp nests between the downstairs wow. roof and the upstairs roof. And I have, to this day, I have never seen a webworm in any of my pecan trees. But this year, everybody's got caterpillars. And again, if they're big old hornworms and things like that, you can just... Pick them off, and uh, <laughs> had a girl work for me years ago. She put her foot on it and say, "He won't have the guts to do that again." But uh, you can pick them off and do a, do away with them that way. I have another friend that just feeds them to the chickens. But uh, the little old uh, things that get on your kale, get on uh, chard and things like that. Uh, either the spinosad soap or BT. If you use the BT, add a little bit of molasses to it, at the rate of about a teaspoon per gallon. That makes okay. the BT much more effective. And I find on tomato plants, because I fight hornworms periodically, but many times if I spray one time in the spring, I don't have to spray again the whole the whole season. Uh, so it just gives them a stomachache so bad they die. Uh, they stop feeding immediately and die within a few hours. And uh, this year I'm happy to report uh, not everybody has a big garden. A lot of people have smaller gardens, and Monterey has come out with a ready-to-use. Uh, we've always in the past had to buy the BT as a concentrate, mix it and spray it around, but uh, they have uh, come out with a ready-to-use where all you have to do is squeeze the trigger and you're spraying with it. So it makes it very convenient. No reason to lose very much of anything to the caterpillars. All right, fantastic. Well, thank you so much, and keep up the good work. You're awesome. Well, it's always a pleasure. One more thing I will tell you about the caterpillars. Some of them live down at ground level. Some people call them sod webworms, other cutworms, things like that. If you're putting out beneficial nematodes for fleas, uh, the beneficial nematodes seem to get the ones that are down at ground level. Not going to do anything up in the trees. Been a, they can't climb. They have to move in a film of water. But it's one more reason uh, if you have issues with fleas or grub worms, uh, the good mix of beneficial nematodes is going to take care of those caterpillars that are down at ground level as well. So uh, uh, interesting times. Uh, it's one of those things that's cyclical, but you're just like we are. I've, I've never seen so many caterpillars and so many different kinds. So should be an interesting summer for moths and butterflies as well. <laughs> yes, absolutely. All right. Thank you so much. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071.
All right, back to gardening. It's going to be Zach and Anna and Linda and Jason. Zach is up first. Good morning, Zach. Hey, good morning. How are you? I'm good, sir. How about yourself? Doing great. Doing great. Beautiful day. Um, yes, it is. I, I have quite a few of um, I bought some of those galvanized troughs and um, planted my garden. Uh, so quite okay. a few gardening items in there. Um, everything seemed to be doing really well. My tomatoes have kind of stopped growing in there. And I was wondering if it might be from heat or maybe I need to add some more soil. I wouldn't add any more soil. How often are you fertilizing and what are you using? Um, I use the has to grow. I have not used it in a while, but I did I <laughs> use that when I put it in. You think they just need a little fertilizer? I think they just need a little little fertilizer. Now, you probably already know this, but there are... Uh, two general categories of tomatoes. Uh, They're called determinate and indeterminate. Where those names came from, uh, who knows. But your indeterminate tomatoes are basically a giant vine, and they... Oh, and mine, I grow them in six-foot cages, and they'll grow up and out of the top and fall down the side and take root in the ground before the season's over. Your determinate tomatoes, which is what virtually all the rodeo tomatoes, most of the recommendations from the uh, uh, A&M folks are, are what we call determinate tomatoes, they grow to a certain size and stop growing. And these are hybrids that have been developed largely for the commercial industry because you know, the guys making soup and things like that, they want to be able to pick all the tomatoes at one time and then just pull them out, throw them away, and start over. So if you're growing determinate varieties, they will grow to a certain size. They'll produce a pretty fair amount of fruit, and they simply stop growing, and that's about all they're going to do. But this early in the season, my guess is if they're not growing as rapidly as uh, you think they should, uh, it's probably just a lack of fertilizer. Using a liquid like has to grow, I try to use it every two weeks, and so uh, try that and see if that doesn't kickstart them uh, back into more production. But uh, in the future, and you may have already done this, but anyway, be sure and learn on the varieties that you plant. I plant, actually, I don't plant many determinants, but I plant Celebrity, which is a semi-determinant, which slows down but continues to produce. But I put those kind of in one section of the garden. I'll put the indeterminants in a different section and allow a little bit more room between them because I know they're going to grow for a longer period of time. So keep that in mind for future gardens, but for now, just get out and get with the fertilizing okay that sounds good um do you think because i'm seeing some fruit on them and they they i I ended up having a leftover one i threw it in the ground and that one's taking off but (laughs) the ones ones i was taking care of have kind of stopped (laughs) yeah your fruit's going to grow and uh develop Uh, these cool nights are slowing down fruit set and it's slowing down the development of the tomatoes they're not growing as rapidly or turning color as quickly as they would be if we were in a little bit hotter times. But uh, things are going along just like they should. It, it's always funny how that little orphan that gets uh, stuck in the ground by mistake or, you know, unintentionally, those always seem to be the ones that grow best. But uh, just uh, try to get to feeding every couple of weeks, and you should have more tomatoes than you're able to eat. Okay, and that's actually the same. Is it, would that go the same for my uh, serrano and jalapeno peppers? Now, they are slowed down because of the cooler nights. They love heat, 
And all pepper plants, but especially in Serranos and Jalapenos, are the two hotter peppers that I grow. And on them, the new growth actually looks a little distorted. And I don't know whether it's they have a little virus that's activated by the cold, because it always goes away as soon as times get hotter. But, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, and, and your okra, too. Your okra loves heat. Uh, only things that don't really seem to pay much attention, the squash and the beans should be growing like gangbusters. But tomatoes and peppers, they're waiting for it to warm up before they really explode into both growth and production. Okay. Well, that sounds great. Um, as far as the peppers, are, do I water them? Is it okay to water them? Do they like it more dry, or is it okay to water them like I do the tomatoes? Well, water them about like you do the tomatoes. I think uh, literally everything in the garden, the secret is when you water, really, really, really water thoroughly. When the soil is dry on the surface, it's time to water your beans and squash again. When the soil is dry, maybe a knuckle deep, it's time to water your peppers and eggplant and tomatoes again. Oh, that's very helpful. Okay. And always remember, I always tell people there's no such thing as too much, but there is too often. So when you water, it's very important that you give them a really thorough soaking because those plants have got the roots pretty deeply into the ground, and you've got to water the soil as deep as the roots are for best results. Okay. Well, I appreciate you. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure, Zach. Thank you for the call this morning. Have a good day. All right. Next up is uh, Anna. Good morning, Anna. Hello, Bob. Greetings from Ohio. And uh, happy Mother's Day to you and all your four-legged kids. Thank you, and uh, happy anniversary to you. I hear tell. Well, thank you. Now. 39 years since we opened our doors, and uh, <laughs> it's kind of like Roberta's husband. If you ask him how long they've been married, he'll say, oh, we've been married 40 years, but it feels like 40 minutes underwater. <laughs> and I have to say that, uh, you know, we don't feel that way about it, but uh, 39 years, we've We've seen a lot of things in 39 years and so happy to be here. But, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's been a lot of work, but it's been a labor of love, so to speak. So uh, we're, we're sure happy with the results. Yep, you got to do what you love. Yes, indeed. I got two things for you today. Okay. Um, when I have to bring some plants from full sun outside into the house for winter so they'll recover, they'll uh, survive. Year, yeah, <laughs> survive. Um, I can't figure out how exactly to expose them to the sun slowly. You know, how long should I take to go from, you know, indoor to full sun? Okay, well, that's an excellent question, and actually the fall is important, too, because when you reduce the light on houseplants, you're always going to lose some leaves, especially on ficus trees and things like that. So in anticipating moving them in, I would move them into a shadier and shadier portion of the yard if you can. Let them get used to the lower light. Let them go ahead and drop their leaves before they're going to be sprinkling them all over the living room floor. So gradually, probably starting about six weeks before you anticipate the date that they have to be inside, move them into a darker area. You reverse that process in the spring, and obviously... House plants, uh, some of them are hardier, like rubber trees and ficus trees and chef liras, and they can go out when the temperatures are still, let's say, in the 40s, whereas things like Chinese evergreens, desert rose, defenbachias, those guys hate it under 70 degrees, so they're going to be the last ones to go out. But I would figure on about a six-week transition, and I would just, you know, move them to brighter and brighter sunlight. Now, some things, of course, never want to go to the full sun even in Ohio certainly not in Texas but uh, as you move them I would give them about a week 
to accommodate in each increasing light level. And the thing, one thing about it is that you can always tell if a plant is about to sunburn. Go out and simply grab the leaf, hold the leaf, uh, press it in the palm of your hand. If the leaf surface feels very hot to the touch, that plant is in danger of burning. If the leaf surface feels cool, it's doing just fine and the sun's not bothering it at all. Okay, okay, now that makes sense. Not what I did, but it makes sense because I (laughs) did have a a desert rose that was just awesome when I put it inside and, you know, Mm -hmm. I did not reduce the, the sun in the fall. And it did go out, I don't know, a little too quickly in the when the sun started being more regular and, and warmer. Yeah. yeah, it did burn everything off of it, and they fell off. But they're well, put leaves back on now. Yeah, it's it's a desert plant. It will come back out. But remember, desert rose, beautiful as it is, it hates temperatures below about 65 degrees. So uh, part of it may have been the sun. Part of it may be it just got a little chillier than it wanted to. I thought it it had a a 50-degree cutoff. Uh, Much more like 65 degree. 65, okay. Well, that's affected. It's a real wimp. It's a real southern plant. It it, it doesn't like any cold. uh, It starts shivering a lot sooner than we do. Yeah, well, so far mine, you know, other than the leaf drop, it's doing really well and blossoms like crazy. It's got a base on it that's about 10 inches across. Wow. Pretty big dude. Magnificent plant. And, well, and and if you look around, we're seeing colors that we've not seen before and two-tone ones. Uh, there's gotten to be quite a cult of people growing desert rose, and there's some incredible new varieties. So add to your collection when you can. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. mine is the, the regular pink one. Oh, there's oh. from scarlet to white to almost a violet color to two tones. Lots more opportunities out there for diversity. Uh, one other thing that I have is on uh, the peach leaf curl. Mm-hmm. We've got some trees uh, that had leaf curl last year. They don't have it this year. And then some that did not have it last year and have it this year. Is there a way to prevent it, you know, when you didn't well, have it the year before? Or? It's, you know, it, it most of the curl is probably bacterial. But, you know, a de- best offense is a good defense. Be absolutely certain that um, the root flare is exposed on those peach trees. I've always found, and I've been guilty of planting trees the way they came to me and then learning that was too deep. Be sure that root flare, flare is exposed and uh, uh, and keep them mulched. And just doing those two things has always helped me avoid the leaf curl. Will, will it spread to the remainder of the trees from one tree if the rest don't have you know. I, I think that it's kind of like, uh, you know, the systemic induced resistance we talk about. The healthier the tree is, the less likely it is to spread. In a tree that's a little stressed, yeah, it may spread to that one. Okay. And then, too, is there anything I can do to the one that does have it? Um, I would probably give a spray of liquid seaweed and little molasses, and that should clear it up. Going to have to hold it there, Anna, because we're right up to news time on KTSA Radio, San Antonio, Texas. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now, 210-599-5555. Oh, yeah, we've had enough news for a little while. Let's uh, let's move on from there. We're going to talk to Linda and uh, Jason and Rosa and Vernon, and let's just go right straight back to those phone lines. Good morning, Linda. 
Good morning. How are you? Good. I'm good. How about you this beautiful Mother's Day? I'm doing great. Glad to hear it. How can I help? I have a tree that's not doing great. Um, what What is causing the brown spots on the leaves? And what kind of tree is it? I have no idea. I knew you were going to ask me that. It's I've lived here for three years, and it was in the yard when we first got here. Okay. Is it a big shade tree? Does it ever have flowers on it? Uh, uh, and how large are the leaves? Give me an idea of the approximate leaf size. Well, the approximate leaf size looks like when they're not just sprouting out, but they're about half the size of the palm of my hand. Okay. And no appreciable flowers on there? No. Okay, um, I'm guessing it's uh, it's probably an oak of some sort or perhaps an elm. Sounds to me like it could be a Lacey's oak. Uh, but there are the, the spotting is in the body of the leaf. It's not on the edges of the leaves, right? It's all over. Okay, uh, it is probably a a fungus that uh, is airborne. Our All our trees are suffering right now because it's just been so dry. I doubt if it's anything you really can or should do a lot about. Uh, if you haven't, three things I would do. If you haven't fertilized yet this year, I would go ahead and same sort of organic fertilizer you put on the grass. Just make two, three passes around the tree out toward the drip line with your fertilizer spreader. The trees can certainly use some nutrient. I can almost promise you they haven't had as much water as they need because the subsoil is so dry. I would lay the hose maybe three feet out from the trunk of the tree. I'd turn it on very slowly, and I'd let it run for several hours to really get some moisture deeply into the ground. And finally, I would look at the trunk of the tree. It should not look like a fence post coming up out of the ground. It should be widening out. It should be flaring out at the base where it gets close to the soil. If you don't see that, you need to start pulling soil back away from the trunk until you get down to the point that you see not the little fine roots, but the major roots of the tree. That's what we call the root flare, and it very definitely needs to be exposed to air. Now, any of those three situations, lack of nutrient, lack of water, or a buried root flare, they're going to stress the tree a bit, and that's when you're going to see these brown spots showing up on the leaves. But I think, you know, with fertilizer, with water, with making sure that the that the root flare exposed the tree is going to put on a lot more leaves the newer leaves that come out should not have the problem i don't think you would gain anything by spraying or anything else i think the tree is just a little stressed and you just need to do what you can to correct that the root flare is very dominant and oh good um, very good on the on the the bark is falling off and it looks like it's got some kind of a gray fungus on it the gray is most likely a lichen, and it is not really harming anything. Now, it's perfectly normal for a tree to shed bark. It's constantly making new bark to the outside, and the old bark, you know, tends to just fall away as it gets pushed out. Now, um, if you are seeing what looks like smooth, bare wood underneath, I worry about anything from a lightning strike can cause a tree to start shedding bark or, you know, some kind of physical injury. But um, uh, 
yin and and you know if you're really really concerned about it i call a good arborist like david vaughn get him to take a look at it but i think that tree is just uh probably suffering a little bit from mother nature i would try the the fertilizer the water and then look not at the old leaves but look at the newest leaves that are coming out on the end of the branches those are going to tell you whether the tree is you know getting healthier again that i, I never look at the old leaves because they may be damaged for many different reasons but as long as the new growth coming out starts looking good that tree's going to come out and be just fine well, I'm looking at a new leaf right now. It's about the size of a nickel, and there's got brown spots on it also. Yeah, uh, something. Also, also, somebody had, like, the branch that goes out over the driveway, somebody has cut that off. So it's just like half the tree, and it's leaning the opposite direction. I, so that, at some point, be- yeah, that can contribute. I would... Uh, um, take clip a little bitty limb off sometime and take by a nursery or talk with a friend who knows trees of the area. It had helped me a lot to know what kind of tree it is, and then I can tell you yeah. if there's any specific problem to look for. But in the meantime, fertilize and water, and that's going to help in any event. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Appreciate your help. I'll look back to hear, look forward to hearing back from you, Linda, and you have a happy Mother's Day. Okay. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Goodbye. All right, next up is Jason. Good morning, Jason. Good morning, good morning Mr. Bob. Morning. Morning, sir. All right, all right. Well, I had to apologize just before the news break. I, I, I'm chasing around a two-year-old and a five-year-old, and I came in, in the last part of that one. <laughs> I, think, well, I think they were talking about what I was what I was wanting to ask about, or at least part oh, of it. Oh, okay. Um, starting off here, um, I live down in Pleasanton. We've got great oaks around here on our property, like eight large ones, huge, huge, massive, very mature and live oaks or live oaks or or chink, what kind of oaks, oaks do you have? Okay, very good, very yeah, good. Yeah, live oaks. Yeah, and so and of course we have oak whip is uh, moving from the through the area. We have it off to our east right now, and some on our street have just gotten it. And so I am curious on doing like a preventative care. Anything we could put uh-huh. in the soil to really saturate the roots. You know, I'm thinking about just going and grabbing something. I see all kinds of uh, antifungal stuff that you can uh, treat. Now. Just plants, no, but I'm no. not really sure, sure about trees or how that works out. Okay, it's real easy, and it's not any synthetic fungicide. It's nothing more than cornmeal. Uh, just good old go to the feed store, get find the cheapest cornmeal you can find. And trees, and a lot of this research has come out of England because people in this country just, they, they want to sell you all the super expensive chemicals to treat the disease. But it has been very definitively shown that trees that are exposed to certain things have their it causes a tree to develop its own sort of immune response now it's not you know people and animals our immune systems fight off one problem at a time your body identifies it builds something that will work against it whether it's uh, a covid virus or whether it's a common cold our immune systems attack one problem at a time we're finding that plants do a much more generalized thing that is referred to as either systemic acquired resistance or systemic induced resistance. And when you stimulate this kind of response in trees, it makes them resistant to oak wilt, makes them resistant to hypoxylon canker, makes them resistant to just about every fungal problem, especially vascular fungi like these are, it makes them pretty much immune to the problem. Now, the things that they have found that create this uh, SIR or SAR response, 
Uh, one of the principal and one of the easiest and cheapest ones is trichoderma, and that's the fungus that grows on the cornmeal. Uh, other things, biochar seems to do it. Uh, something called salicylic acid seems to do it. But in our part of the country, the best way that we can make our trees uh, not be affected by oak wilt, I think, is with the use of the cornmeal. And the most effective way that they have shown to get your trees immune, immune to it is to take some five-gallon buckets and five gallons of water, add about one to two cups of cornmeal, let it stand overnight. This is creating what we call a corn water tea. And then pouring this around the trunk of the tree up to about 10 feet out. In this case, we don't go out to the drip line. We stay up within about 10 feet of the trunk. A tree that's up to maybe 8 inches in diameter, one five-gallon bucket's adequate. And obviously, the bigger the tree, the more you would want to do. You have a tree that's 18, 20 inches in diameter. I'd probably do four or five five-gallon buckets. But uh, let the water stand overnight with the cornmeal in it and then simply dump this water over the root zone Doing this about every six months seems to make the trees almost totally immune to oak wilt problems. I have done a similar things with trees that already have oak wilt, and in virtually every case, the tree has recovered and, you know, shaken off the oak wilt and gotten back to be a good, healthy tree again. That's pretty sweet. You're literally giving your, your, kit, your uh, trees a vaccine, pretty much, is what it sounds like. Well, it's uh, we don't know exactly the nature of this systemic acquired resistance. And like I say, virtually nobody in this country is doing anything with it. But uh, in England and in Germany, there's been a lot of research coming out. My arborist friend, David Bond, has sent me numerous articles on what they're learning about it. And the most important thing is just that it does work. Now, I mean, I've, what five, what, one, one, one five-gallon drum for like every eight inches around of the trunk, you said? No, no. If the tree is up to eight inches in diameter, then one five-gallon bucket's probably enough. If the tree's ten or twelve inches in diameter, I probably do two five-gallon buckets of liquid. Uh, and just as the trees get bigger, we're going to make more of this liquid to use per tree. Now, for years, I've talked about using dry cornmeal, and I can show you trees up in the hill country that, you know, were half dead from oak wilt that are now healthy you know, perfectly beautiful trees after having used a dry cornmeal. But with this liquid approach, you use a lot less cornmeal. You have a lot less problem with deer and hogs trying to come in and heat up the cornmeal. And uh, <laughs> it seems to work just as well. So, uh, and I'm sure you could probably I need to do this and see if there's anything new has come up. But Google either systemic induced resistance or systemic acquired resistance would actually schedule the, David Vaughn, who's an outstanding arborist, would schedule him to give a lecture here at the nursery this month. And, of course, we're not doing lectures with our uh, social distancing thing. But when it gets safe to go back to teaching classes again, um, we'll get David here to do that. The classes are always free, and it would be worth driving up from Pleasanton to uh, to hear it from from probably the best expert in the area. But uh, that's a great question, and you know anybody, me, you, everybody else that has beautiful oak trees that they want to protect, if there's oak wilt in the neighborhood, I think it's a real good thing to do. The other thing, and this is strictly anecdotal because I live in the country, I live uh, on a fair piece of property and a lot of people around me, I find the people that use synthetic fertilizers on their fields and the people who use a lot of herbicide trying to kill out the iceweed and other things, those trees seem to be much more susceptible to oak wilt. So 
Uh, don't be using weed and feed. Don't be using, uh, you know, the synthetic fertilizer. Stick with good organics. And I think your trees uh, have a lot better shot. And back even before we knew about this systemic-induced resistance, oak wilt marched down my neighbor's property line, and I mean killed probably 50 giant oak trees along the road. It got to my property line and simply stopped. I've got totally healthy trees no more than 30 or 40 feet away from his dead trees. And, um, hmm. you know, so anecdotal, but uh, very evident. So staying away from the bad stuff plus using some of the good stuff should keep you safe and healthy as far as your trees go there in P-Town. Okay, and what, uh, what else would you recommend for fertilizing for the actual trees themselves? That is totally up to you. Those trees probably don't need a lot of help. But uh, if you want to use just any general-purpose organic fertilizer, whether it's Medina's Growing Green, Meister Grows Texas Tea, Nature's Creations Premium Lawn Food, same sort of thing you would be putting on your grass. Just put a little extra around your trees, and they'll love you for it. And find a way to do an effective rain dance and share it with all the rest of us, because we sure do need some good soaking <laughs> rains for all of them. Well, you let me know when you get that one worked out, and then uh, we're going to do well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the, the rain dance, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the rain dance. Uh, you figure out a way to do that, and I, I've got a job for you that's going to pay real well. <laughs> All right, sounds good. Thank you, sir. Oh, life is good when you're surrounded by good people, and that's sure the way we feel here at the nursery. That's the way I feel on Sunday mornings with my great uh, great friend and engineer back in the radio station. I just, there's a lot to be thankful for, and I hope hope you're as thankful as I am for all the things that are going right in this crazy world. As Don and I were just talking, uh, I don't, I'm not real sure what normal is anymore, but uh, I love the little sign we've got up that somebody brought us that uh, says, uh, the answer is plants. I don't care what the question is <laughs> so anyway hope you're gonna spend some time out and uh, if you're looking for a good gift for mom you know get out and visit a good nursery and uh, you'll find everything from pretty plants to beautiful gifts as well and uh, lots of nurseries around so far as i know everybody's pretty much wide open once again we are all pretty much asking folks uh, wear masks if you can and uh, do keep that social distancing going and we'll all stay healthy and uh, have fun and protect mom as well we're going to talk to rosa and dave and Robert and Vernon and Rosa is up first. Good morning, Rosa. Are you there, Rosa? Don, do we have Rosa there? All right, then let's just keep on moving down the row. And uh, Dave looks like the next folk fellow that's up. Good morning, Dave. Or Dell. Okay, Dell. I'm sorry, I wrote it down wrong. Good morning, Dell. Yeah, good morning. Uh, Good morning. I, I have a question. Uh, the uh, soft rock phosphates that yes. I put on my bottom of the tomatoes when I put them out. Yes, sir. Yeah. Is that the same thing as that Florida natural phosphate? Um, I don't know it by that name, but it probably is. If it is a rock phosphate, uh, I like the one, the one I like best is by Carl Poole because it's sort of powdered, but uh, any, now it's not the same as superphosphate or triple superphosphate. That's a chemically derived stuff, and quite honestly, that's what I used uh, many years ago learning to garden with my grandfather, 
But uh, we found that what they call rock phosphate is a better product. But uh, sounds what you're describing sounds like it is probably the same thing. And just remember, you can't blend it into the soil. It does get chemically tied up, becomes inert if it's blended into the soil. So I try just putting a handful of it in the bottom of the hole, plant your tomato plant on top of it, and... Uh, it will very definitely increase your production. Now, I had a caller yesterday that told me that he was doing that when he planted his okra, and he did part of his okra with, part of it without, and uh, he was saying that the ones that he used it with on the okra, the plants were significantly bigger and stronger, so I'm going to plant some more okra this week, and I'm going to give that a try. I haven't tried it yet. I've tried it with peppers and eggplant. I feel like it helps a little bit. Tomatoes are simply where it helps the very most, so uh, you give it a try and report back to me. I'd love to know what your experiences are. I'll try that. I'm going to plant some okra today. Uh, Very have, good. Uh, when, you, when you add rock powder to your soil for 100 square feet, what do you, what, how much do you add? Well, again, it depends on which rock powder. The rock phosphate, you, you don't add, you don't blend into the soil. But when you're adding things like azomite, when you're adding things like green sand, when you're adding, uh, oh gosh, uh, uh, some of the lava sands, things like that, I usually figure somewhere around 10 pounds per 100 square feet. Now, on lava sand, I go a little heavier. On azomite, I go a little bit lighter. But in general, if you aim at about 10 pounds per 100 square feet, you'll be in good shape. I appreciate it, Bob. Thank you. Dale, it's my pleasure. I appreciate the... Appreciate the call. Sorry about getting not being able to read my own writing here. You get out and have a wonderful Sunday, and thank you so much. Thank okay. you. Certainly. Goodbye. All right. I know Robert is up next. I know that name pretty well. Good morning, Robert. Hi. Uh, good morning, Bob. Hey, morning, I'm, sir. I'm, fix- I'm fixing to make a um, raised garden bed, and I want okay. to plant some, uh, some, some fruit, some berries. But I'm just curious. Okay. If you, I, I'm sure you're familiar with Hugel culture. Yes. Okay. It's a- how, would that, how would that work here? You know, it is a technique that's been around for a long time, especially in Germany. Um, There's nothing wrong with it, but there's several reasons that I don't really recommend it. Because with the Hul culture, you're talking about putting a lot of raw cellulose, a lot of raw wood fiber into the ground and no matter how you look at it when when we use wood fiber up on the surface of the ground the fungi and bacteria that break it down are able to take nitrogen from the air and that's what they use in their decomposing processes which of course frees up a lot of uh, other materials for the plants when you bury it in the ground then it has to get the nutrient it takes to survive it has to steal that from the fertilizer that you're putting in so I, if you want to try it, I'd do it, but be prepared to use about three times as much fertilizer as you normally would. Um, I, for me, it's just it's going to a lot more trouble than is really necessary. I, everything I do is organic. Everything I do is natural. 
And I have to say, I grow a pretty darn good garden, and I can give you a list of people that will tell you how much they appreciate the the produce that I share. And uh, I guess I should mention, as we come into tomato season, that uh, the barter system is alive and well. A bag of homegrown tomatoes will get you uh, a free drink at many coffee shops. It may even get you two bags will get you a free meal at a handful of restaurants that I know. So uh, I'm into production. I do pretty well with it. And to me... It's one of these things like lasagna gardening, like keyhole gardening. Sure, it's fine if you want to try it, but I think you're going to a lot more work and uh, not really achieving anything that's better that you can achieve that you cannot achieve maybe a little bit easier, more easily with standard organic processes. So, um, not going to discredit it, but you know, if your life's as busy as mine. I want the maximum yield for the minimum back work that goes into it, so to speak. I, I think that's the nicest way I can put it. I, 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 it's it's not it's not something that I want to practice, but for somebody who has a lot more time on their hands, sure, give it a try, see how it works out. But it's not a magic bullet that's going to solve all your gardening problems. Right. And the next question. I know you're almost out of time here. Um, what kind of topsoil should I put in there? And also, since I want to, I want to grow berries, like you know, the berry bushes, um, mm-hmm. stuff like that. You so know, what, what should I use? I I would just use your native soil. Now, most berries like a little bit more water. I think they're where a lot of people fail with blackberries and things like that is that they don't water as frequently as they should. So the main thing I'm going to add to the soil, you know, along with nutrient material, I'm going to add lava sand because lava really helps hold moisture in the soil and at the same time, you know, allows a lot of oxygen in the soil, which you want. Uh, little green sand is always, you know, a good additive. But as far as adding soil, typically if you just bring it in soil, you're just bringing in weeds. So I'm going to work with the soil that you have and uh, probably add some compost, add some humates, uh, and maybe a little bit of lava sand. Yeah, I'm here at Lake Hill, and it just seems to be all clay. Yeah, uh, and compost is going to be the main thing you can add to it. Compost will turn clay into a loamy soil. Oh, okay. Cool. Thank you very much, man. All right. Back to gardening on an absolutely beautiful Mother's Day Sunday. And, uh, oh, golly, so much to talk about, but the most important things are what you want to talk about. It's going to be Vernon and Judy and Bill and Chicken Joe, and Vernon is up first. Good morning, Vernon. Good morning. Good morning, I sir. I, got, I guess everybody's got a question. Hey, I got, uh, <laughs> Many times more than one. Garden, that's what we call in, right? Yes, in sir. In garden, I've not been bitten by anything as far as my son went out there the other day, and he said he got his ankles were, it looked like chiggers. He had been bitten up. It, how would I get rid of them or just make sure there aren't any? I haven't been bitten, but... There is there one of the most effective insect repellers that there is is cedar oil, and uh, you can get cedar oil in a number of forms. Uh, the folks at Nature's Creation actually put it in a a sprayer ready to go on the end of the hose. You just hook it up and turn a little dial on there that is called Cedar Repel. And it works against chiggers, it works against mosquitoes, it works against... Uh, 
midges. It works against lots of these flying little creatures. Now, some of us old geezers, I think, are just a little tough, and we just don't get as many problems as some folks with maybe a little bit softer, more tender skin. But uh, if you want something you can spray around the garden that is totally safe, it's not going to hurt anything, but it's going to run off a lot of the troublemakers, just get some uh, some cedar. And the, the easiest form that I've found is this new stuff called Cedar Repel. Uh, by nature's creations, all ready to hook on the hose and go. Okay, um, I got a, uh, a question too about my my Santa Rosa plum. It's like yes, four sir. years old. I've never got anything this year. I thought I was close. I had blooms. I covered it. I got some insulate from you, uh, and I still didn't get any. I had bee. I got a tangerine tree, a satsuma that's I don't know twenty feet tall. Uh-huh. Uh, I got all kinds of buds all over it. The bees were buzzing. I I thought I had a swarm somewhere. That's how much was there. But the plum, all the flowers, uh, flowers fell off. I've got nothing. Well, with yeah. all plums, Santa Rosa is at least partially self-fertile. But you're always going to get uh, more bloom set uh, if you have a second tree. Uh, Cross pollination just uh, is is really important on plums. Did you prune or thin your plum this spring? Yes. Okay, that, that's important, too, to go through and thin it out. But if you're getting flowers but not much fruit set and you've, uh, you've got the bees around, that to me just tells me you need more cross-pollination. So plant a methylene, plant a bruce, plant a there, – there are a bunch of different plums. plums. Yeah, they're all plums. And where you can get cross-pollination back and forth – uh, and, you know, if you don't have room in your yard, talk your neighbor into planting a tree because those bees fly a pretty good direction or pretty good distance, and uh, you'll both get a good plum crop. But I think your I think your tree just needs a friend. You said methyl, M-E-T-H-L-Y? M-E-T-H-L-E-Y. Methylee is a very good plum. Uh, there's one called Bruce, B-R-U-C-E, like a, like a name. Uh, that's another very good one for this area. And both of those will be good pollinizers uh, with uh, Santa Rosa, and I think that's a greatly increase your plum crop. Now, it is important to do that thinning every year on a plum tree, but you've already done that, so uh, be sure and do it well, again next week. This is the fourth year I've had it, and I never planned, I never pruned it before. First yeah. year it was a twig, you know, a stick. I bought it. I don't know where I bought it, but uh, it was just there wasn't nothing there, and I got a free. Second year I got a light free. So this year I covered it, and earlier in the year you said something about uh, pruning it, so I pruned it, and then uh-huh. after I pruned it, I had, I got the flower, the you know the bud, the flowers. Yes, sir. And so I can plant either one of these uh, methylene yeah. or Bruce four hundred yeah. four hundred yards away, eight hundred yards. I mean a uh, yeah, I, I would have it. Yeah, I would have it within a couple of hundred yards. A couple hundred and yards. And if it's yeah, if it's right next to it, that's fine too. But whatever, wherever you've got room for it, uh, my old friend Alton Grimm that I learned so much from, he used to tell me those bees will fly up to a quarter of a mile, which of course is about four hundred yards. So uh, I would plant it a little closer if you can, but up to four hundred yards, you should be okay. I can get it closer. I just I I, I was looking for a. A distance I could hit, you know. Get, <laughs> my neighbor on one side, that's it's that far before we get out of the oak tree. We got great big oak trees. I live in Cibolo. Yes, sir. And the other guy, yes, he's sir. open, but I got a 
privacy fence and I got to go around it's a long way to get to his yard <laughs> well so. you can you can plant it right next to your existing tree if you have room but uh, I think getting cross pollination is going to make a big difference for you on that tree and uh, even if your new tree is small since it's going to be a grafted tree it is capable of blooming and it can make a lot of pollen even if it's not big enough to set a lot of plums it can it can start a lot of plums on your bigger tree and then as it grows it will have you know lots of plums of its own and both of them are delicious plums i i love ripe plums that's something you cannot buy a decent one in the grocery store uh <laughs> the worst plum out of your garden will be better than the best plum at h-e-b no offense to h-e-b but it uh they're just nothing like a fresh ripe plum kind of like peaches uh they just uh and and the, there's a scientific reason plums and peaches do not ripen once they've been picked off the tree apples and pears do that's why you can get a good apple or a good pear in the grocery store but uh plums and peaches they soften but they never ripen and taste any better so you picked a good fruit tree to grow let's just get a let's get a companion for it and you should have good plums hopefully yeah. next year I thought Santa Rosa were one that didn't need a uh, companion or whatever. Generally, generally they will set at least some plums without, but it sounds like you're doing everything else right. So uh, just kind of the process of elimination. I think the the one thing that's missing is cross-pollination, and it should help. I have to say, too, that... uh, you know, name tags sometimes get wrong, and I've seen more than one person that thought they had a Santa Rosa, and it actually turned out to be some different plum because somebody, you know, took a tag off one, put it on another, or pulled a tag out. So we're, we are relying on something beyond our control to know that it is indeed a Santa Rosa plum. Uh, there's no guarantee that somebody didn't get a name mixed up somewhere along the way. And there's no way to look at that until... After I get a plum or... After you get a plum, yeah, we can probably tell. But there's no way to tell by just looking at the leaves or looking at the flowers. Hmm. All right. Thank you very much. (laughs) It's my pleasure, Vernon. You do the same. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. All right. Next up is Judy. Good morning, Judy. Hi, Judy. Hey, Hey, Bob. It's Chicken Joe. Oh, Chicken Joe. All right, sir. Well, got my got my order a little mixed up here. Okay, Chicken Joe, good morning. Good morning. Hey, uh, what a day it is. But, um, I got a couple of questions. I got a questions about uh, putting a couple of plants from pots in the ground because okay. we're going to be heading back to Colorado at the end of the month. Um, and you're talking about putting them in the ground here, though, not in, not in Denver, but talking yeah. about here. Yeah, okay. Here, here. Okay. Uh, kangaroo pot, can I put those in the ground uh, while we're away? Um, you can. Uh, Nizaganthus, uh, kangaroo paw, <laughs> what does they say? I can't even remember that name. Uh, but uh, it is going to be, it will, it will grow through a light freeze. It's an Australian plant, as you might guess yeah. from the name. But it'll take yeah. a light freeze. It's certainly going to be happy in the ground for the summer. And then we'll see what kind of winter it turns out to be. We may have to give it a little winter protection, but yeah, it's going to be a lot easier to take care of uh, in the ground than it would be trying to maintain it in a pot, uh, unless you want to carry it along with you, in which case you could put it on your patio up there, but it should be fine in the ground yeah. here. Okay. And uh, the old pods have, the older pods have turned kind of dark brownish purple. Do people typically uh-huh. leave those on or they did? Do they deadhead or what? 
Uh, there's no such thing as typical in the plant world. Some people <laughs> cut them off. Some people leave them on. So you do what pleases Joe. It's not going to make it bloom any better uh, to cut yeah. the old ones off. There are a lot of things we deadhead because that does tend to bring them back to the bloom, crepe myrtles and uh you know, uh, a number of things like that, Esperanza and many things. Yeah. But uh, don't think it's making a lot of lot of difference. Just good fertilizer, regular watering is what's going to get your uh, you get your kangaroo paw to stay in bloom. Yeah. Well, I think it looks kind of cool the way it is. It's an one, interesting plant. Yeah. Yeah. The other plant, uh, it's a little jasmine that we have in the pot. And the only best thing I can offer you is the botanical name is apparently Jasminum polyanthum. Yeah, it's got small yeah. leaves and little white flowers, I think. Right. Can I put that in the ground for the summer? That is one that is definitely not going to be cold hardy, but it's going to be a whole lot easier to maintain. What you might think about doing, Joe, is just sink pot and all down in the ground, let its roots grow out through the bottom of the pot. It'll be a lot easier for uh, somebody to keep watered through the summer months. And then when we get closer to freezing weather, you can just kind of go dig it up, snip the roots that have grown through the holes in the pot, and uh, be able to protect it for the winter months. But uh, it's probably not going to be cold-hardy, and we almost always get at least one chilly night. Now, it's been a while since we had a real, really cold winter, and it won't hurt my feelings if it's a long time before we have another one. But uh, but that one, I, that one I, I'm pretty sure you're going to have to bring in next winter. Would you do that? Would you do that with the kangaroo paw, paw also? No, I go ahead and plant that one in the ground. Okay, all right. I okay, think it'll cool. it'll get by if you cover it up. The jasmine probably covering won't be enough, but the kangaroo paw just covering it if it gets pretty cold probably should protect it adequately. Okay, well we'll be here in the winter so we can take care of it. I've turned into a snowbird. well you've you've lived well you've worked hard you deserve to enjoy uh enjoy your time and uh colorado's pretty nice place to spend the summer months if you if you don't mind being with a lot of people i still uh, you know wyoming still has my heart for when i can get away because there's much more wide open spaces and fewer people but uh the rockies i'll just put it that way they they appeal to me more than uh most other places do yeah, well, we really enjoy our time in Texas, but when they turn on the heat, we're heading north. <laughs> you sound just like my business partner. Joe, it's always a pleasure yeah. visiting with you, and uh, okay, wish the uh, ladies in your life a happy Mother's Day for me. Thank you, sir. Okay, bye-bye. Goodbye.